will be speaking about the pictures of a broken nation. Now, this is not uh, a a sermon that I, I came up with. I have to be honest with you, this is a sermon that Jeremiah preached. And we, I didn't even go out of my way to alliterate the points or try to make it homiletically beautiful. All I did was really <laughs> labeled what he, what he preached. And we're going through them. Uh, this is definitely referring uh, to Israel and not to America, just so we're clear. Uh, but I do believe that he was announcing certain cracks within the structure of what God had wanted Israel to be. And I, I, as we study this, we are to some degree contrasting and comparing that with the way America currently is. And I understand that America is not Israel. Uh, like I said last week, we're on completely different sides of both oceans, okay? Uh, we, we, we're not even close to the same place. But I will say that uh, there are some, some stark similarities that we, that we will study throughout this little uh, uh, lesson that we'll study. Uh, and we'll kind of review last week so that if you weren't here, you'll know what we were talking about and where we left off. In verse number 2, and really the first four verses of Jeremiah chapter 2, we looked at the picture of an unfaithful bride that Jeremiah referenced. And we'll we'll just kind of narrow it down to verse number 2. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord. And remember, this is Jeremiah proclaiming on behalf of the Lord. So when he's saying, Thus saith the Lord, he's saying, I received this message directly from God. Thus saith the Lord... I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, and the love of thine espousals. The word espousals there, we talked about last week, meant a bride preparing for her ceremony. It was uh, literally the marriage, if you will, of God to Israel. And God looked back on that marriage with great uh, 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 love and, and with great affection. But the Bible tells us that they strayed from the relationship that God had wanted them to have. God wanted it to be a mutual relationship. He would love Israel and Israel would love him back. But uh, it, frankly, Israel cheated and they were idolatrous. They began to seek the gods of the other nations, which I've never understood this, which they just defeated because of the God they served. And so we looked at the picture of an unfaithful bride. Then secondly, we looked at the picture of a forgetful wanderer. Uh, Verses 5 through 8, we'll read towards the end of verse number 5. What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity? Again, painting the picture of someone searching or wondering, verse number 5, and are become vain. Neither said they... Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death? You see, what, what God is asking is, when you, when you set out on this adventure to go find what you were looking for, why didn't you start with me? I've been faithful to you all these years. I've done the impossible with you. I took you from just being a a, a small group of people to being the people that everybody feared. Y'all remember when Israel went into Jericho and they sent the spies ahead. Y'all remember what Rahab said to those spies? The whole land trembles at y'all. We know that God hath given you Jericho. It was a foregone conclusion because what God was doing through Israel. And God just simply asked the question, 
When you decided to look for someone to fill the hole that you were trying to fill, why wouldn't you start with me? I've been so good to you. There was a picture of a forgetful wanderer. And number three, probably the most uh, famous picture in this chapter, a picture of a broken cistern. Verses 9 through 13, we'll focus on verse number 13 as we review. The Bible says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What God was saying was, I had everything you needed. Spiritually speaking, the living water is spiritual contentment. Drink from me, you'll never thirst again. And yet the Bible tells us that they hewned out their own cisterns. They, instead of searching for this water from the rock, they dug themselves surface ponds that would only hold temporarily. And that's what every idol they ever bowed to, that's all it did, satisfied their need for worship for a moment. The Bible tells us that that's the three pictures. We'll pick up verse number 14 this evening. We'll do our very best to get through four pictures. I do not know if that will happen, but we will try. Verse number 14. The Bible says, Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Naf, and good luck with that one, Tahapanes, have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, and that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of Sihor, or... What is thou to do in the way of Assyria, to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore, and see that it is an evil thing, and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. And that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. For of old time I have broken thy yoke, and burst thy bands, and Thou said, I will not transgress when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and And take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Lord, tonight as we come to you, opening this passage of Scripture, Lord, you have very direct language for the children of Israel. Lord, you you do not uh, 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 hesitate to use the language that may be even offensive and controversial as you speak to them. And Lord, as we study these broken pictures of a nation, I pray that you would help us make the appropriate applications, not to overuse them or misinterpret Scripture. Lord, I do not want to take anything out of context tonight, but I pray that you would allow us to accurately study your Word and apply it as your Holy Spirit sees fit. Lord, we pray in the power of your Spirit that you would do this because your son died for us and loves us and wants to speak to us tonight. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been said, a picture says a thousand words. If that is true, if we were to take a single picture of America, what would those thousand words say? Or better yet, what type of story would it be? Would it be a comedy? I would suppose it would probably be a drama. When I was younger, my dad took me to a restaurant called the Big Texan Steakhouse in Amarillo, Texas. How many of y'all have ever been there? A few of you. Good. How many of y'all have ever eaten the entire steak? Okay, good, good. I ate the whole 12 ounce, the whole thing. Uh, But the Big Texan, uh, it's very unique because of the, uh, uh, I don't know, the novelty of it. Honestly, you should stay close to home if you want a good steak, but it's a fun place to go nonetheless. That's where they serve the 80-ounce steak. I think it's 84-ounce steak, and you have to eat the whole steak, all the gristle, all the fat. You have to eat the entire baked potato, the, the skin and everything, the salad, a piece of bread, and if you'll do that, then you get the steak for free. Why? But anyway, that's the, that's the game, and it's kind of a, it's a unique restaurant. But when I went, I was probably, I would guess, about eight years old. I got up to go to the restroom. And this restaurant is uh, just like just about every steakhouse you've ever been to. It's very country-ish. has a western feel and theme to it. But I went to the restroom, and I started looking at these pictures on the wall. And if you've never been there, it's going to be very hard to describe, but I'm going to give it a go at it. You look at these pictures, and it may be a picture of a farmer family. Just a a man and a woman standing in front of their barn, okay? It's black and white, and they're all old. There's not a picture from probably uh, this uh, century on there. It's it's probably early 1900s, maybe even late 1800s. And all the pictures are very old. and, And you're looking at it, it's black and white. And then you continue walking, and it changes. Now... I don't know why they put these pictures in this restaurant, but to an eight-year-old boy, these were scary. You know why? Because these pictures turn into zombies. What? How out of place is that? You see this farm family, you think, oh, that makes sense. You continue to walk in some type of uh, a hologram, if you will, it changes, and now this, this old farm lady looks, before you wanted her to serve you breakfast, now you want to run from her because she's got crazy face, and I, it, I don't even know why it's there, and it still scares me to this day. So I just don't go to the bathroom when I go to the Big Texan. It's a very odd thing. You know, America's picture might not be too different. There are places that I believe you could go in America. For instance, this would be one of them. If I were to take a picture tonight and to describe to someone America and I showed them you sitting in church with your Bible in your lap, ready to hear from God, boy, that's a good picture. But what if we go down to downtown Dallas tonight in the back alley where a person is so addicted to a substance that they've basically removed themselves from any family connections. They are living literally one shot at a time. If I take that picture, that's not near as good of a picture. You see, a picture does say a thousand words, but it depends on what picture you're looking at. May we as Christians not get so facetious to believe that our little world is the only one that exists. 
And that here in the Bible Belt in Joshua, Texas, surrounded by a group of friends that all believe the same way that we did and probably voted the same way that we did, let us not believe that that is the accurate picture that God looks at when He sees America. We're going, to look, we're going to continue to look this evening at some pictures from the book of Jeremiah. Verse number 14, I want to share with you the disloyal servant. A picture of the disloyal servant. The Bible says, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? Now, let us, before we get too deep into the study, make a very big distinction between a servant and a slave. Okay? When Israel was in Egypt, they were not servants. They were slaves. In fact, God even recognizes this very big distinction. You see, when Abraham and God were making a covenant, Abraham had a a servant in his house. His name was Eliezer. And, And Abraham, not fully understanding what God was going to do through him and giving him Isaac and making him a great nation... Abraham looked at God, looked at the resources available and said, God, you can bless me through my homeborn servant, Eleazar. Abraham was willing, because of the relationship he had with his homeborn servant, to hand him over the keys to being the father of a nation. You see, the difference between a homeborn servant and a slave is very vast in consideration to God. And God says, the relationship that I originally had with Israel was one where I was their master and they were not my slave, they were my servant. Not only were they my servant, but they were my home-born servant. You see, there was even a distinction between servants and those born in the home of a master. See, that home-born servant would have had the protection of the master. He would have had the provision of the master. And he would have have been preferred by the master. And you know, that's what God wanted. Was Israel to be preferred above all nations, to be cared for above all nations, and to have his power work on their behalf at all times. And yet Israel chose a different route. And that's why in verse 14 he says, Is Israel spoiled? Has the relationship that I originally intended to have, is it all gone? At first we began with such a tender, it's kind of like he's referring back to the espousals. We, We started with such appropriate intentions only to be derailed by your idolatrous hearts. A disloyal servant. I want you to notice in verse number 18, a ridiculous allegiance. Verse 18, the Bible uses uh, pictures, uh, really uh, 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 succinctly, the Bible says, And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? Now we all know who Egypt is, right? They just came out of bondage from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. You remember the last picture Israel would have had of Egypt was Pharaoh chasing them down with a a, a bunch of chariots trying to kill them. Okay, that's Egypt. The Bible says to drink the waters of Sihar. Sihor is a branch of the Nile River. So when it says that, it means to drink the waters of Egypt or to drink from the Nile River. 
Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria? Now, Egypt would have been located southwest of Canaan. Assyria would have been northeast. And all to the westerly border would have been the Mediterranean Sea. They are surrounded by Egypt south and Assyria north. And Assyria, the Bible says, to drink the waters of the river. What you have is you have the Nile River flowing out of the Mediterranean Sea south into uh, Egypt. And yes, I know the Nile actually flows north, just in case you were wondering. But uh, it, it, it is running from the uh, uh, front in Egypt, okay? Now, Assyria has Euphrates. So if you can imagine the Nile running south and Euphrates kind of running uh, southeast, if you will, and right in the middle of that is Canaan, okay? They would have never needed to drink water from the Nile or the Euphrates. This here is uh, helping us understand that Israel had made allegiances with Egypt and with Assyria. For much of Israel's history, they are always at war. They always have enemies. And for the moment, they have somewhat signed a treaty. They've agreed to not be at war with Assyria and Egypt. And they are now in cahoots with these two nations. And you know the real problem? Peace is good. But what the problem was is they were trusting in peace rather than trusting in God. Bible tells us that they had had some ridiculous alliances. God told them that he wanted to be their God and that he wanted to save them and protect them. Psalm chapter 20 says, now, now know that I the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And that's what God wants from His children and from His nation. And yet they began to trust in diplomacy rather than they did the divine. They began to trust in their abilities rather than they did His abilities. What a bad thing when we begin to trust our human devices rather than trusting God Almighty. But the reality is here in America we do it. We try budgeting better instead of trusting God with money. Or better yet, just being a good steward with what He's already given us. Amen. We try seeking self-help from people who don't even know who Jesus is on a personal level. We ask them their opinion on our finances. We ask them their opinion on how we should fix our homes. All the while never consulting the Creator of those things. What a shame. We have some very foolish alliances. And as Christians, can I just say, let me encourage you to always consult Christian uh, uh, knowledge and wisdom before you consult secular knowledge or wisdom. They are so counter opposite. As preacher preached this morning, death must always precede life. You know what else must uh, uh, always take place in a Christian's life? If you want to be first... You need to find out how to be last. If you want to live, you better learn how to die. You see, the Christian life is absolutely paradoxical when compared to the secular life. So when you need help getting along with your wife, 
Don't go watch Dr. Phil like he's going to help you. And I say that jokingly, but if I consult your library, who are you reading? Who are you listening to? What podcast are you downloading that's going to help you? I'm telling you, if your solution to your problem right now does not have Jesus at the very center, you are not even on the right playing surface when it comes to fixing your issue. We have some very foolish alliances. Secondly, I want you to see a rightful aftermath. We have these uh, ridiculous allegiances, but then this rightful aftermath is found in verse 19. Okay, if this is the way you want to do it. You want to trust in Egypt? You want to trust in Assyria? Verse number 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Now, listen to this. God says, okay, I'll just get out of the way. And I'll let your foolish decisions come back to haunt you. You know what I often pray when I'm making a big decision? God, please don't let me make a foolish decision. And if I do make a foolish decision, Lord, I pray that your grace would overwhelm my foolishness and you would fix my foolishness. You know what God says? I'm not going to do that for Israel. I'm going to let them trust in their own devices. I'm going to let them have the leash, if you will, And then I'm going to watch them as they struggle with the consequences that are caused by their actions. Verse number 19. And thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. You want to trust in Egypt? Yeah, that didn't go so well last time. I bet it won't go so well the next time. You want to trust in Assyria? You know what I've noticed? Even the most honest men of integrity have their breaking point most of the time. All it takes is the right amount of money to get involved. Or the the, the right situation for that person to not be full of integrity. You know who always handles every situation justly and righteously? I've only found one, and that's God. God says, you want to deal with these men? You want to trust in these men? I will allow it and you will regret it. A rightful aftermath. You know, God will sometimes do this to his children. Do you know that the Bible tells us of Solomon, how at one point in his life he was totally sold out for God. But he writes a book called Ecclesiastes. And at the moment when he wrote that book, his heart had strayed just a bit. In fact, you find him trying to fill the void that God had once held in his life with all manner of things. He tries filling it with pleasures. He tries filling it with material things. He says, I've gotten me men servants. I've gotten me maid servants. I've gotten more camels than anybody. I've got more donkeys than anybody. They make more noise than anybody. I've got more wives. I've got more problems because I've got more mother-in-laws. I've got everything a man could ever need. You know what he says? And this was vanity of vanity. I found no profit under the sun. Friend, if you want to set out on your course, I pray that God does not let you walk into the consequences of it. 
I hope that God doesn't get to the point with you like he did Israel and like he did Solomon where he says, okay, if this is the route you want to go, I'll just step back and watch it. I need God every day. I need God to make up for my uh, foolish mistakes. But God tells us here of a picture of a disloyal servant. Secondly, he tells us a picture of a stubborn animal. Verse number 20, the Bible says, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. God says, I can't tell you how many times I've belled you out of problems. Time and time again, I was there to be the deliverer, the savior for you. I have broken bands. I have broken yokes. Time and time again. And then he says, and thou hast said, I will not transgress. At the moment of the deliverance, they looked up to God and they said, boy, God will never stray again. God, we'll stick to the stuff now. We've finally seen your hand at work. How well did that work for the children of Israel as they left Egypt? It took them about to the Red Sea to regret following God. And then once they got past the Red Sea, they started regretting that they didn't have the food that once was found in Egypt. So they they got angry that they had actually stepped out in faith and followed Moses. God says, oh, I've broken your bands. I've delivered you time and time again. And every time I do it, you say, oh, but we're going to be better this time. And you know what happens? Verse number uh, 20. You say this when upon every hill and under every green tree thou wonderest playing the harlot. It's a direct reference to the fact that they had groves in their backyard built to idols when they're looking up to God saying, Oh God, we'll never betray you again, only to step in their backyard to do it. It reminds me of the time when they actually built the first golden calf. They looked at Aaron and said, Oh, make us gods for what's become of this man, Moses. We know not. We wot not in the King James Version, if you'd prefer. We don't even know what's going on with him, so up make us gods. We're going to put this gold in your hands and you're going to craft us a god. And you know what always happens when men craft their own gods? It is always something of nature. Man cannot be more creative than God. Can you imagine being God creating every animal that we see from nothing? And yet if you try to create your own animal, you know what you're going to do? Borrow elements from God's creation. We could never craft our own God. We could never even do it. And yet Aaron thought he could. And then, you know what happens? The Bible says, they sat down to a feast for the Lord. With a golden calf hovering over them. They eat and they drunk and they rose up to play. Only to then show obeisance to that God. They were so split. They were so divided. They weren't fully persuaded on God. They weren't fully persuaded on the golden calf. And that's why men like Joshua stood up and said, you better choose who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. One of the Old Testament prophets said, how long halt ye between two opinions? Find God. If he be God, then you choose and serve him. 
Friend, how long are we going to be a stubborn animal and with our mouth glorify God and with our actions do such a different thing? How long are we going to come to church as a social check on our calendar? When are we going to actually turn it into what real worship ought to be? When are we actually going to start coming to church with the expectation that change can occur in our life? I'm here to tell you, if if you find yourself distracted in the song service and thinking about other things in the preaching service, I don't think we're there yet. You know what we are? We're a stubborn animal. We say we will never stray. We say we are committed to God when we couldn't be further from that. A stubborn animal. What a sad thing that the Bible tells us of this. Uh, There's my son leaving the auditorium. He's thinking about other things. He's divided, I would suppose. I have two dogs. One dog's name is Angus. He's a big black lab. I think the last time we weighed him, he weighed about 95 pounds. He's built like an Angus bull. That's why he's called Angus. He's got a big white diamond in his chest. And while that's not desirable on most Labrador retrievers, it looks awesome in mine. It's like he's got a John Wayne Sheriff's badge at all times right there on his chest. He's a big, big, strong dog. Angus is very well trained. I have another dog. His name is Hunter. He's a beagle. And half the time I think my dad laces his dog food with crack. That dog is so schizophrenic, man. He doesn't even know what's going on. You go down there, he starts twitching. He's got that crazy look in his eye. You don't know what's going to happen if you let him out of that pen. Every single day, my dad goes down to feed these dogs of his or mine. I'm not sure whose they are now. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, so I guess they're yours now. But every day, my dad goes down and feeds these dogs. And I'll see from time to time, he lets Angus out. Angus runs all over the property however he wants. No restrictions. We let him out. He runs around. He goes and and marks his territory. He lets everybody know that he's the big dog in town. He does his thing. And then my dad says, Angus, come here. Kennel. You know what Angus does? He comes here and gets in his kennel. Now let me tell you what has happened when we have let Hunter out on the few occasions it's occurred. I illustrate for you now, opening the gate. I illustrate for you now, Hunter running out of the gate. I illustrate for you now, us trying to chase Hunter down. There are two parallels that God said, I wanted you to have an Angus relationship. It wasn't that I was your taskmaster. You had liberty. You had freedom. The relationship that I desired was not one of bondage or of tyranny. The relationship that I desired would bring you peace and joy. All I asked for was when I asked, come here, you'd do it. But instead, you look like Hunter. You run wherever you want. You do whatever you want. No matter how much I call, no matter how much I chase, you have your own way and there's nothing I can say about it. You know what you are? A stubborn animal. You don't think God's warned our nation about the direction we've headed? 
I taught the youth this morning, look, friend, we are not about to be judged by God. We are being judged by God. I I mentioned to them, if you would have told me when I was 12 years old that America would ever be this divided on every single issue, whether it's race, whether it's party, whether it's uh, where you live, whether it's what your background is or what your income is. If you would have told me when I was 12 years old that America would have been on the brink of a civil war between police officers and between people just on the street, are you, I would have not believed you. Yet look at where we are now. I turn on the television only to see one hate party yelling at another hate party. What a shame. You don't think God's tried warning us? You don't think when those twin towers fell to the ground, you don't think God was trying to call us back? And you know what? For a little while it worked. I remember driving by Dairy Queen and Joshua on 9-12-2001 only to see God be with America. Pray for America. You could drive to every business in town. Everybody was crying. Everybody was praying. People were seeking God. You don't think He's warned us? And you know what we did? We were stubborn. We turned to God for the little while only to say, oh, there's no real solution here and turned our back and sought our own way. What a shame. The picture of a disloyal servant. The picture of a stubborn animal. Thirdly, I want you to see this. The picture of a degenerate vine. Verse number 21. Yet, I had planted thee a noble vine. Holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me. Now, every person in this that would have read this during this time period would have accurately understood the picture. Everybody would have had to have some level of knowledge when it came to farming and very likely of a vineyard and of a vine. But God looks at them and says, if I plant a good seed in a good place, It ought to produce good results. And I took you and founded you with great men, some of the best that ever lived. I gave you the best thing that's ever given besides Christ. I gave you the law. I gave you all of these things. And now to top it all off, I've not put you in bondage. I've put you in freedom in a promised land that flows with milk and honey. I've planted a good seed in a good soil only to see bad results. You're unthankful. You don't follow me with your heart. And yet it doesn't even make sense that I could do what I've done and get the results that I have. You know, for years, me and my dad did plant seed. This is not our first failure. We have failed many, many times. You know the only way we've actually ever succeeded? We got lucky a couple times, and then we asked somebody how to do it right. And then it worked. Well, probably, if anybody's a sunflower expert in the house, it would be great to talk to you after church. That would be wonderful. 
But you see, when a farmer prepares good soil, that good seed is planted in that good soil, and there's great care given, and all that needs to happen happens, it makes sense that it would come up, does it not? And God says, I put you exactly where I promised I would. I've done everything and more than I could, and yet I get an idolatrous nation that's turned its back on God? Some of the best men in America's history came at the foundation of it. Men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And even though there were some of those men that weren't necessarily Christian, those were great men. Now, a vast majority of our founding fathers were Christian, but even the ones that weren't understood the value of morals and understood that God had some level of... of, of, uh, of needing to be in government. All of these men understood that. And some of the best men that's ever lived in America's history, you know when they came? At the very beginning. And then I look at where God planted us in one of the most fruitful nations ever. We came with natural resources abounding only to ruin them. If you don't believe me, where are the buffalo? Small herds. And now we try figuring them out. And I'm not trying to get all uh, conservationist and political. But we try fixing our problem by introducing wolves. Only to see them ruin what we've actually regained. I wonder if God looks at America with similar viewpoint as he did with Israel and says, I gave you some of the greatest men that's ever lived. I put you in a place where only success should have come. I've given you revival. I've given you great preachers. I've given you everything I could only to see a nation that has marches for gay pride. You know what gay pride is? It's sin pride. And it's no different than a a, a murderer walking down the street with a sign saying, I'm proud I murdered someone, because it's all sin. And and really it's no different than you, Christian, walking down the sign saying that I'm a dishonest businessman, and I'm proud of it. Look, it is a shame what God has given us and what we have done with it. We are like Israel, and there are some... Very similar things about these pictures and what has gone on in uh, America. So we've talked uh, briefly about a disloyal servant. We've talked briefly about a stubborn animal. We've talked briefly about a degenerate vine. And now finally we close a defiled body. And we will spend a good portion of time on this topic because I want you to learn something tonight. Verse 22. For though thou wash thee with nitre, nitre, whatever you want to say, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord. What, what he's saying is, with what you've done, you cannot with any of your own solutions fix the guilt that you have. You cannot undo what you've done by your own solutions. 
You can't just step back to the feast that I've asked you to hold and think that everything's okay. You can't do it. You can't just build me another building and expect that everything's going to be fine between us. You can't scrub behind the ears and make sure that you and I are okay. What is he saying? He's saying, soap won't cut it. Forgiveness will. Repentance will. But boy, in this day and age, we are very confused on what repentance is and what it is not. So tonight I want to take a look briefly at repentance. Repentance starts in the heart. Jeremiah is actually a preacher on the heart. Sixty different times in his book, he refers to the heart. It was Jeremiah that taught us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It was Jeremiah that looked at Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, was thine heart from wickedness that thou mayest be saved? How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? He looked and he said, And I did not know this until I began this study. Did you know that Jeremiah was around during Josiah's revival? Did you know that Jeremiah saw God do great things in his day? And yet we know him as the weeping prophet. We know him as the guy who who doesn't see much go on in his day. Why is that? Let me suggest this to you. Maybe the emphasis is on the heart in his book because everything he saw with Josiah's revival, at least with Israel, not with Josiah, it was all procedural and not personal. Josiah legislated that all the groves be cut down. Josiah commanded that certain feasts be held. Josiah... Uh, organized and ushered in, if you will, a rigorous uh, 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 religious practice in hopes of restoring. And God did revive some. But why is Jeremiah's book so negative? Why is the emphasis all on the heart? You know why? Because it was procedural. It was not personal. It was in the head. It was not in the heart. Oh, repentance can come to you, but it must begin in the heart. If we're going to know what repentance is, we must first know what it isn't, okay? Here's a few things that repentance isn't. Repentance is not penance. Penance is the feeling as if you voluntarily put yourself under some pain or some subjection in order to earn this repentance or forgiveness. That is not repentance. Repentance is not remorse. Feeling bad about what you've done does not fix what you've done. Ask the kid who breaks the lamp. You have to go tell mom, mom... I broke the lamp. Just because you feel bad about it doesn't mean that everything's okay. Repentance is not remorse. And this is very important. Repentance is not self-condemnation. Okay? Hating yourself because you hate your sin is not repentance. As one preacher put it, self-condemnation only opens wider the wounds of guilt and despair. 
Hate your sin. Do not hate yourself. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of an almighty God. Do not hate you because you hate your flesh. Repentance is not these things. So what is repentance? Well, repentance commences with a convicted heart. Okay? If you have a pen tonight, I very rarely ask you to do this. Write these down if you can. Repentance begins with a convicted heart. The Bible describes conviction. In fact, King David does. He says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Repentance often, or or, or, I'm sorry, conviction oftentimes is physical despair. You have here uh, Acts chapter 2. The Bible says after Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost, the Bible says... They were pierced to the heart. You know what I could call conviction? Moral misery. Listen to me. It's moral misery. God has put within us a conscience. The Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 1. More importantly than that, for the Christian, God put in us the Holy Spirit of God. And these two work with the law of God in our hearts to let us know as a warning sign and as a stop sign, stop what you're doing. It's only leading to destruction. It's going to cause you hurt. It's going to cause you pain. And oftentimes you will find when you are not right with God, you are not right with anyone. You know why? Because you're miserable. And it's conviction. But listen to me. Conviction is not repentance. It's only the first step. And it's good if you are convicted over sin. But repentance commences with a convicted heart. Repentance carries on with a contrite heart. A contrite heart. Oftentimes we see conviction begin to affect you. Spiritually and emotionally. I can only imagine as Peter stood up against that little maiden there by that barrel as he warmed himself. And everybody said, Peter, we know you've been with God. We know you've been with Jesus. You talk just like him. You act just like him. You're one of them. Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never been with Jesus. I don't know him. And he denies Jesus. You know what the Bible says? Once Peter got convicted, he went out, and you know what the Bible says? Wept bitterly. It was the outflow of conviction. Listen to me. Not every time you're convicted does a tear need to be shed, but oftentimes it will. It it displays your your subjection, your realization of humility before God. And I'll tell you this right now, I don't cry. Except on very sad movies, long walks on the beach, and sad love songs, okay? I don't cry. I hate crying. I've broken bones and not cried. I've been in football games and been concussed and not cried. I don't like crying, but... There comes a time when I don't, even the roughest and toughest man like Peter 
realizes that he's messed up. And when you finally come to the point where you're willing to accept conviction for what it is and not just indigestion, you're willing to finally say, you know what, what God's been speaking to me about, I'm willing to admit that I've been wrong. You know what contrite heart is? It's taking that conviction and allowing it to evolve into your admission of guilt. And standing before God, realizing that if everything were just and righteous in His court, you would not get a a good verdict. So what happens is, repentance commences with a convicted heart. That's The Bible tells us that it carries on with a contrite heart. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, For godly sorrow worketh repentance. But the Bible says now that it continues with a changed heart. This is all very important. You can't just feel bad about it, admit that you've been wrong, and continue to do it. Because repentance, as it's defined is an about face towards God. It's heading one direction and finally saying, God, you know what? This whole time I have been wrong. But not just saying that, taking steps to fix the problem. You know, the Bible says, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 28, he that covereth sin shall not prosper. Now this is very important. But whoso confesseth, that's good. And forsaketh shall have mercy. Look, so the process of repentance in your life is a convicted heart, a contrite heart, and a changed heart. But there's a fourth step. And out of all the steps, this is the one we often struggle with the most. Listen to me. It culminates in a competent heart. Listen, it was not your plan to forgive you. It's not your idea. God said, I will forgive you. So when we come to God with conviction and a contrite heart and we bow a knee before him, say, God, I'm so sorry, I need to change my ways. Lord, I'll do everything that I can. You get up, listen to me, the culmination is this. I know that I've been forgiven. I know I've been forgiven. And you don't have to allow the scars of yesterday to determine your tomorrow. You don't have to let your skeletons dictate to you what you're going to do with tomorrow. You get down on that knee and you change your course, you change your life. God said he would forgive, so you accept his forgiveness, not on the basis of your experience or knowledge or willingness or or ability to earn it. You accept it based upon the premise of his holy, eternal, unchanging word when he says, come unto me. When he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. When 1 John says, "If he, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. So when you bow your knee and you change your life, you get up with the confidence of knowing I stand forgiven before Jesus Christ. That's repentance. And you know what? Repentance is not a crutch in the Christian life. It is your empowerment to walk in liberty. It is realizing that perfection was never the goal in the Christian's life. It was not attainable. You could never be good enough to earn your way into heaven before salvation. You'll never be good enough to earn it afterward. But God gives you repentance to restore the broken pictures in your own life. And how are we going to change America if we can't change ourselves? You see, some of us, it's been years since we've felt true repentance. We've felt true guilt. We've even felt bad about it. And we've even at times hated ourselves for it. But it's been years since we've felt a contrite heart bowing a knee before God and saying, Lord, it is up to you to change this heart. When's the last time that God convicted you of a sin and changed you so that you no longer were in bondage to that sin? You know what that is in the Christian life? That's our Canaan. That's our victorious Christian life. Realizing that we have this relationship with our Redeemer. Realizing that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Knowing that we are the sons of God. We find power and confidence in this. All because we are forgiven and justified. And the relationship between us and God has no cracks. It is perfect.